If everyone could open up their Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you've heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. As we continue through Colossians and the reading of this passage, you may have recognized or figured out what the operative word in this passage was. It's reconcile, to be reconciled. Now, the common word in the New Testament for reconciliation is, in Greek, is katalasso. And it means to to change mutually and to come back into favor. In a marriage relationship, we need to constantly be practicing katalasso. That's why Paul tells us not to let the sun go down on our anger. If we allow the night to go by, our anger and frustration just tends to grow. You've probably all experienced that. Nip it in the bud. Get to take care of it before going to sleep at night. And just as it takes two to tango to get into an argument... It takes two to tango to reconcile to each other. There has to be a willingness on the part of both parties. Remember, the word means to to change mutually and to come back into favor. But our passage this morning, it's not talking about reconciliation in marriage. It's not talking about reconciliation between friends. That's reconciliation on a human level, very important but not Paul's point this morning. There's a whole nother level that Paul goes to when he talks about reconciliation between God and people. God being reconciled back to people, people being reconciled back to God. There's another term for reconciliation that's used here in Colossians chapter 1. Paul doesn't use katalasso here, he uses apokatalasso. In Greek, whenever a preposition is added to the front part of the word, it intensifies the word. Apokatalasso means to be thoroughly reconciled, completely reconciled, totally reconciled, once for all. We don't have to be saved over and over and over again. Jesus does that once for all. Remember why Paul is writing this letter. He's fighting a counterattack against false teachers that have come to uh, Colossae and trying to infiltrate the church. The false teachers have said that it, it was not possible for a person to be reconciled to God by Jesus alone. You had to have special knowledge and uh, perhaps the input from angels or other spirits. So the point that Paul is making here is that there is total and absolute and complete and full reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. He is complete. He is supreme. And that's the reason he uses 
a much more intense word here describing reconciliation. So we saw in verse 15 to 19 that Christ is God. That was Paul's point there. And Paul closes that section in verse 19 by saying, For God was pleased to have all His fullness, all of God's fullness, dwell in Him, dwell in Jesus Christ. And folks, it's because of that that He alone is able to reconcile people to God. And that's the point that Paul is making here. You know, there are five terms that summarize our salvation, kind of giving a different viewpoint. There's justification, there's redemption, there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, and there's adoption. Justification, we stand before God as the accused and are declared righteous. In redemption, we stand before God as slaves and are granted freedom by his ransom. In forgiveness, we stand before God as debtors, and the debt, having been paid, is forgotten. In reconciliation, we stand before God as an enemy, and we become his friend. Peace with God is made. In adoption, we stand before God as strangers and are made his children. The all-sufficiency of Christ. Christ does it all in every aspect. Now, out of those five amazing terms, we're going to be looking at one because that's what Paul is focusing on here in this passage, and that is reconciliation. What an appropriate topic, actually, as we look forward to our baptismal service this morning, because each of our five candidates have been reconciled to God and will be publicly proclaiming that reconciliation uh, later on this morning. And in this passage, Paul gives us four aspects of reconciliation that we're going to go through. The plan of reconciliation, the means of reconciliation, the aim of reconciliation, and the evidence of reconciliation. So let's look at the plan, the plan of reconciliation. In verses 20 to 22, it says, through him, we're talking about Jesus Christ, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. How? By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you. Through whom? Through Christ. To whom? To the Father. It is God reconciling us to himself through Christ. Have you ever thought about how big that concept of reconciliation that Paul is talking about here is, uh, as he's trying to express it, is? God is reconciling himself to himself all things. What does that mean? Well, if we take a deep dive into the Greek... The Greek word means all things, everything. Let's go back just a minute. God made everything good, right? He said it over and over and over again. God created and he looked on it and he said, it is good. He made it all good and he made it for his pleasure. All things have been created through him and for him, Paul tells us in verse 16. And man and woman walked in the garden in the cool of the day, and they walked in the presence of the Lord, and it was all very good. But then sin entered, and the world rebelled, and the universe was cursed, and all was alienated from God. 
And we now live in a cursed earth, on, and our planet occupies a place in a cursed universe. And God's got to clean it all up someday. That's why when the Bible talks about the restoration of everything, it calls it a new heaven and a new earth. Because right now, everything is in a rebellion against God. But the Bible says right here that God is going to reconcile everything back to himself. In a very real sense, God is going to make friends with the universe again. It's going to come back into harmony. How is he going to do that? By him. By Jesus Christ. Christ is the agent. He will carry out the reconciliation. Well, when's that going to happen? Paul tells us in Romans 8, verse 19, for the creation waits. It waits in eager expectation for what? For the children of God to be revealed. Did you know that the whole universe is waiting for us to be glorified? Because it's going to get because the universe is going to get in on it as well. They, the universe itself can't wait. Verse 20, 20 goes on to say, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. In other words, the created world, the animals and the plants and, and the stars, it wasn't their fault. It was the fall of Satan, and then subsequently the fall of mankind that brought the curse down upon everything. So all of creation is eagerly waiting. Why? Verse 21 of Romans 8. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. There it is again, waiting for the children of God. And When the full and final reconciliation takes place with the coming of Christ, all of creation will be reconciled and the curse of the earth will be lifted. That's going to be an amazing day. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, it says, When the times reach their fulfillment, when it's God's time, when the time comes to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Again, it's all going to happen because of Christ. And it's by Christ that the whole universe comes back to God. The restoration of the entire universe, and Jesus will then reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the plan of reconciliation. To reconcile all things to himself, starting with us. Now, look at verse 21, and he stops talking in that generality. He stops talking about all things, and he becomes very specific and very personal. Once you, individually, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you, personally, individually. He starts out by saying, once you were alienated from God. Before we came to Christ, we were alienated. It means to be estranged, to be cut off from Him, to be separated from Him. Paul expounds on that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's serious alienation. But now he goes on to say in verse 13 of that same chapter there in Ephesians, In Christ, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's a beautiful statement. Jesus Christ came and found you and drew you to himself. 
you are living proof of the power that God has to reconcile. In chapter 4 of Ephesians, verse 18, Paul talks about the Gentiles. He says, they, they are darkened in their understanding. We, we of, course, of course, are included in that Gentile population. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Well, that doesn't seem fair, right? It's not their fault that they were just ignorant. I mean, how, how can a God separate them from himself if they didn't know, if they were ignorant about it all? That certainly can't be a loving God. Folks, it's so dangerous to form one's theology around one verse or a phrase in a verse. Because Paul goes on to say they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to. This is why they're ignorant. Due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. They did it themselves. How do you lose sensitivity? By consciously doing what's wrong over and over and over again and normalizing it in your life to the point where your conscience no longer bothers you. We're talking a little bit about that in our spiritual growth class this morning, the immorality that has grown in our own culture and around the world. And when you do that, you are in the process of hardening your heart. Things become the new norm. We've heard that phrase before. Hopping into bed with someone in the first date has become the new norm. It's all over TV, all over movies. Everybody does that. Same-sex relationships have become the new norm. They're trying to normalize the changing of genders by making us uh, conform to the non-gender pronouns. Our country as a whole is losing all sensitivity and hardening its heart by, as Paul describes it, giving itself over to sensuality. You see, the darkening of understanding and the ignorance that is in them is not due to innocence. There is no such thing as an innocent unbeliever. Look again at verse here in Colossians 1.21. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your own mind. Why? Because of your evil behavior. John 3.19 tells us clearly that people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. It's really very simple. You, you sin. You love your sin. You then begin to hate God because he rebukes your sin. And because you hate God, you are now being alienated and cut off from him. And it falls on every single person. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 2 and 3, we read, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers will guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. Can't get it much clearer than that. It's personal. It's a person's sin that creates that hostility toward a righteous God that creates that alienation. Now, if this is true, following the logic here, if people are cut off from God because they are hostile, because they love their sin, in order then to reconcile them, what has to be dealt with? The sin. That's the root cause of the problem. And so reconciliation then must deal with my sin. If sin can be dealt with, then that frees me up from the hostility from God. 
which frees me up from the alienation as well. Now, something's going to have to happen with sin, and I'm the problem, not God. So here's a question. Who gets reconciled to whom? Well, actually, God gets reconciled to me, and I get reconciled to him. They're both true. Let me explain. In order for me to be reconciled to God, I'm going to have to be somehow transformed. Transformed from being a sinner and being righteous. My sin has to be dealt with. And that's what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, where he says, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself. He has to make us new creatures, a new creation, before he can reconcile us. So a person has to be dramatically transformed. So on the one hand, our sin has to be dealt with. But on the flip side... God's got to deal with something himself as well. In order for God to allow me to enter his presence, his wrath has to be dealt with. Why? Because God cannot look upon sin. He cannot tolerate it. And so sin is going to have to be dealt with, on my part, to turn away God's wrath on his part. Ephesians 2 tells us that because of our sin, we are deserving of his wrath. Or we were deserving of his wrath. Somehow his wrath needs to be appeased. And you know, that's exactly what God did. God appeased his wrath by pouring out his wrath upon whom? Upon his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. God made us new creations by faith In Christ, Christ took it on. If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Jesus took all of our sins upon himself in order to make that happen. So on the one hand, God makes us new. On the other hand, God transfers our sin onto Christ and appeases his wrath. Both have to take place. What an amazing, amazing thing that occurred at the cross. He bore our sins in his body, and the power of his own life was then poured out into our lives to transform us. That's why there is only one way to God. There is only one way to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, because he is the only one that was able to take on God's wrath, the only one that was able to forgive our sins to reconcile us to God. Paul tells us that because of our sin and alienation from God, we were God's enemies. That's a strong word. That's a strong word. Everyone on the planet starts out as God's enemies. Not because he hates us, but because we hate him because we love our sin. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world. How much did he love us? How much did he love the world? While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, Paul says in Romans 5. That's a lot of love. While we were still enemies. That leads us to the means of reconciliation. The plan 
Now the means. Verse 20, again, of Colossians 1. Here's, here's the means. Here's the way it was done. By making peace through His blood shed on the cross. How did Christ take God and man who are enemies and make peace? He made peace between God and man through his blood on the cross. If we go down to verse 22, it says it another way. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Notice that Paul uses two different phrases in in these verses, and he does it on purpose. It's through his blood. It's by Christ's physical body through death. These two phrases show how God dealt with sin. First of all, through the blood shed on the cross. Blood is a metaphor of, for sacrifice. It's his death for sin that saves us. And what he's saying there is that the blood is a symbol of the sacrifice of Christ. The reason the Bible talks about the blood of Christ is because that connects Christ's death with the entire sacrificial system of the whole Old Testament. And says he is the final sacrifice. He died for sin once for all. Now all Old Testament sin offerings were bloodshed. We know that. The lambs slain through the ages. Thousands and thousands of them over the years. And all those animals were pictures of the coming final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The final lamb without spot or blemish. That was God's plan. Since uh, sin was to be paid for by death, the price of ransom was to be the blood, sacrificial death. And so when he came, when, he come, when we come down to verse 22, we read this, we were reconciled by Christ's physical body through death. I thought he just said through the blood. And now he's saying through his physical body. The Greek literally means in the body of his flesh through death. You see, his death as a man, his death incarnate in human flesh, is what reconciled us to God. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, Romans 8.3 says, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. You see, it was a flesh that sinned, and flesh had to die. And Jesus took on that flesh. And that body of flesh had to die. You see, Christ died not just as a sacrifice, but he also died as a perfect substitution for us. That's what these verses mean. He died as a sacrifice in verse 20 by the shedding of his blood, and he died as a substitution through his physical body that he had taken on in verse 22. He paid the penalty as a substitute. And so, do you know what happened? God said... That takes care of my wrath. My wrath is gone. The substitutionary death takes care of my wrath. And when Christ rose from the dead, he can now transform us and live in us by giving us that new life. And we can now say with Paul, for to me to live is what? Is Christ. God's wrath has been turned away and I have been transformed all because of the cross. Our salvation is possible only through the death of Christ. So we've seen the plan of salvation and the means by which that was accomplished. We've seen the plan of reconciliation. So what's the aim of reconciliation? What's the purpose of it? It's rather amazing if you look at verse 22, right in the middle of that verse. It says, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Think about that. In order for us to be in God's presence, to be 
accepted by a holy God who said, be holy because I am holy, we need to be holy. We need to be pure and without sin. The only way that's possible is by the shedding of the blood which Jesus did for us. It's by the blood of Jesus Christ, which was the penalty price that he had paid, Jesus can now present us holy in his Father's sight. Because we are now holy, forgiven, purified, washed as white as snow, we are also now without blemish. Remember, Jesus was the final sacrifice without blemish. We are now without blemish because Jesus took that on himself. Why does God now see us as holy in his sight? Because it's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. It is Christ who the Father sees in me and in you. Then it also follows that if we are holy in God's sight and without blemish, which means without sin, then we are also free from accusation. Who's the accuser? Satan. He's the one that is called the accuser. And if we are walking in purity with the Lord, we can't be accused. We can resist the devil. We can remind him that we have been forgiven, that we are free from accusation, and we can tell him to go away and leave us alone in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And James tells us he will flee from you. Because he knows that's the truth. Reconciliation is amazing. So how do you know if you or someone has been reconciled? Well, that brings us to our last point here, the evidence of reconciliation. Look at verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel... You know how you can tell a true Christian? One word, continuing. If you continue. Who's reconciled? The people who continue. Remember Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 8, verse 13, the parable of the sower. There's seed that fell on different types of ground. The seed that fell on the rock, they're the ones who, uh, who hear and receive the word gladly and with joy, but having no root. In times of testing, what happened? They fell away, they withered, they died. You know something? They were never saved. They didn't continue. There was never a heart change. They had never given their life to Jesus Christ. They had never entered into Jesus. Let me remind you of Jesus' word in John 8, verse 30. We actually talked a little bit about this in our home Bible study group. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching... The next one is what we talked about. It's okay. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. That's the evidence. That's the proof to continue. He's not saying if you hold to my teaching for at least a year, well, then, then I'll make you my disciple. That's not, that's not the point he's making here. Listen, obedience to Christ is not the requirement to be saved. Obedience to Christ is the evidence that you are saved. That's what the continuing part shows. True branches of the vine in John 15 do what? They remain. They abide. They continue. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. That's the continuing part. That's the evidence part. 
This is a picture of a grapevine with branches being grafted into the vine. If a grafted branch doesn't take, if it's if it doesn't truly, if it's not truly connected, doesn't it doesn't continue in the vine? It is wither, it withers, and then it is cut off and thrown away. It was never truly in the vine. James says, "Be doers of the word, not hearers only." Listen to First John chapter two, verse nineteen. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Then he says in verse 24, As for you, see that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain. You will continue in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He promised us. Eternal life. Who gets eternal life? Those who continue. Those who are grafted in. Those who abide in Christ. Those who remain. is repeated over and over in many different ways in Scripture. And here in Colossians, Paul is saying, watch out for those false teachers, those who are saying, you know, Christ isn't sufficient. Christ isn't enough. You've got to do this and this and, and, and do this other thing as well. Paul says, no, Christ is supreme. He is the only one who gives you a new life and can actually transform you. And the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the transformation. Is your life being led by the Holy Spirit? If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. What's that hope that's held out in the gospel? It's that Jesus is Lord. He is Savior. He died and rose again. He paid the price for our freedom. Our enemy is defeated, and we can live in victory because it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. What's the hope held out in the gospel? If I have made Jesus Christ my Lord, I have a guarantee of eternal life, and it's the Holy Spirit that is living in me, which is that guarantee. It's all wonderful, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Let's go home. But we've got a responsibility. We have a responsibility that God has put on us. And I'm going to mention it and let you ponder it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says, listen, because this is of utmost important for us as followers of Jesus Christ. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Folks, we were reconciled to reconcile. He has given us a responsibility. Now that we've been reconciled to God, God wants us to take that message of reconciliation to those around us because he wants to reconcile them too so that he doesn't have to pour out his wrath upon them. Have we taken on that ministry of reconciliation? If not, we need to. Father, this morning we thank you for what you accomplished on the cross. Amazing, amazing things. We just touched on what reconciliation is all about. But Father, you planned this from the very beginning, from the fall of mankind. All the way through the Old Testament, you were 
sharing with us prophecies about the coming Messiah who is going to take on this project of reconciliation. In the fullness of time, He came and then He went to that cross and He took all of our sin upon Him and He brought us into a relationship with you through that reconciliation. Your wrath was turned away. Our sin was taken away. And we have a relationship with you. And Father, I pray that we will not just be content in that, but that we would take on that ministry of reconciliation and share what Christ did for us with those that are around us. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.